thank you all for coming on this beautiful day. Um, I'm Nefriti Sajjar. I'm acting director for the Barnard Center for Research on Women. I just have to, well, I have just have a couple of announcements uh, before we begin. Um, I want to um, announce a few upcoming events sponsored by the Center for Research on Women, um, which are very much related to the topic of this conference, and I and I invite you to return to them. On Tuesday, March 4, Kathy Cohen, who is the director of the Center for the Study of Race, Politics, and Culture at the University of Chicago, is giving a lecture entitled Black Youth and Empowerment, Politics, and Rap Music. That's going to be at 5.30 in the afternoon um, in the Elliott Parlor at Elliott Hall. This is part of the speaker series celebrating 15 years of Africana Studies at Barnard, which is directed by our energetic and inspiring Professor Kim Hall. A few weeks from now, also, I invite you to join us for an event marking a pivotal year in American politics, 1968, um, as it was experienced here in Barnard and Columbia University. American historian and the student at Barnard during that tumultuous era, Professor Estel Friedman will give the Virginia C. Gildersleeve Lecture entitled Coming of Age at Barnard, 1968, and she will offer a view of the politics of the past from the perspective of the history that followed and our own present. That will be on March 26th at 6 p.m. in the James Room in this building. There are many more upcoming signing events, including the annual Distinguished Women in Science Lecture on March 12th, given by Laura Landweber, Associate Professor of Ecology and Evolutionary Biology at Princeton University. Her lecture is called Epigenetics and the Writing and Rewriting and Rewiring, <laughs> Rewriting, Rewiring of Genomic Information. All the details of these events and, and many more still for the rest of the spring semester are in our newsletter, which you, uh, I think are, is downstairs, and I encourage you to pick one up and uh, to return. Um, one more little thing, it, uh, just uh, housekeeping. Uh, there is no food allowed in this auditorium, so I, I ask you please to um, leave the food outside. There will be more food later, <laughs> so you can get more later. All right, finally, um, here to officially welcome you on behalf of the college is the president of Barnard, to whom we are at, at the Barnard Center for Research on Women, um, deeply indebted for her unflagging support for the center's work, particularly the Scholar in the Feminist Conference, which she has come to every year. As she steps down this year after 14 years of leadership, we have the great pleasure of honoring her and her contributions to women's education academic integrity and freedom, women's leadership, in a panel discussion on April 28th in this room at 5.30 p.m. I have the great pleasure of presenting her today, Judith Shapiro. Thank you, Nefertiti. It is a pleasure to be here to open and celebrate the 33rd Scholar and Feminist Conference the State of Democracy, Gender, and Political Participation. For more than three decades, the scholar and feminist has taken a bold and critical look at the issues that matter most to feminist movements, from sex, gender, and sexuality, to race and economics, to politics and culture. Over the years, we've heard from such visionary scholars, artists, and activists as Winona LaDuke, Barbara Ehrenreich, Honor Moore, Elaine Pagels, Faye Ginsburg, Anna Quinlan, Jane Gould, Anna DeVere Smith, and last year, Maria Hinojosa. Their work not only invites us to think, but challenges us to carry through with work of our own. 
to act. The scholar and the feminist, as evidenced by its longevity, is the core of the center's programming. It never fails to make an impact. It is often controversial. It is always ambitious. It has provided a forum for cutting-edge feminist theories, as well as a space for imagining how we might use those theories to effect progressive and lasting social change. Today, we turn our focus to the state of democracy in our country, not a moment too soon. I'm certain that every person in this room is planning to vote in November, and by doing so, planning to have a say in the outcome. But the truth is only 55% of eligible voters went to the polls in 2004, and that unimpressive turnout was the highest since 1968. To quote Gore Vidal, half of the American people never read a newspaper, half never voted for president. One hopes it is the same half. <laughs> in complex ways, gender, race, and class are closely tied into this reality, and in this election, the relationships among them are especially fraught. Fixing what ails the political system will be no small feat. Much of what today's conference will explore is the role women play as individuals and activist groups in bringing about the change on this front. How can we make wider political participation in the United States the rule and not the exception? And how can we advance women's leadership and influence in every aspect of the political scene? Before we begin the first panel discussion, I would like to take a moment to thank the staff of the Center for Research on Women, Gisela Fosado, Hope Dector, Lucy Trainer, an eager team of student assistants, and most especially, Director Janet Jacobson, who is on leave at Harvard, an obscure institution somewhere to the north of us, this semester. We are most grateful to Nefertiti Tadiar, Associate Professor of Women's Studies at Barnard, who is serving as acting director in, Jan in Janet's absence. Nefertiti arrived at Barnard in 2006 from the University of California at Santa Cruz. She has, in a relatively short period of time, become central to the life of the college and it's a pleasure to turn the podium over to her now. Thank you, Judith, and welcome, everyone. This year, the Center's Advisory Board has chosen to focus on a topic um, that is that could not be more timely. In the middle of the presidential election year, we are faced with a question of the present and future state of democracy in the United States, and insofar as the U.S. government has gone into the business of exporting democracy to other countries in the world at large. As the electoral campaigns become more and more intense, we have also had the occasion to witness the issues of race and gender raised again and again in explicit as well as tacit ways in the media and in everyday conversations. Race and gender are raised as issues bearing on questions of who will be nominated, who is voting, how, and who can best lead the country. Just this week, a commentator in the New York Times remarked on the differences between the supposed steroid-driven locker room tactics of the first serious female presidential candidate and the supposed more feminine, sensitive management style of her male rival, which is shaping their respective voting constituencies. These kinds of perspectives, as well as the startling misogyny and racial innuendos that have marked the course of the campaigns 
point to the fact that gender and race matter in many ways to electoral politics. The marked underrepresentation of women and racial minorities in public office, which is only underscored by the milestone we have reached in having for the first time in U.S. history the serious possibility that a president will be elected who is not white and male. Such underrepresentation manifests the continued operation of profound barriers of gender and race to political participation in the American system. Beyond the identities of nominated and elected candidates, race and gender matter to the democratic process itself, impacting who votes, why they vote, how they vote, and whose votes get counted. Despite universal suffrage, gender and race continue to exclude large numbers of people from participating in the political process. With the increasing rate of incarceration over the last 20 years, many people, about 5.3 million, are largely, largely from impoverished and minority communities, are today barred from exercising their right to vote even after their release from prison. Others are barred from participating by more informal but no less systemic structures of social and economic marginalization from the political life of the nation. And among those who can vote, a large percentage remain unconvinced that the democratic process will make a difference in their own or in anyone's lives. Insofar as gender, race, and class affect the uneven distribution of resources and social goods, and the unequal divisions of labor that shape people's everyday lives and their relationships to power and change, gender, race, and class are relevant to some of the most important political issues of our time. War, the economy, vital social services, health care, education, the environment, structural violence, and social inequality. Beyond the electoral process, how can and do people make decisions about these collective concerns? What political processes can and do they engage in to redefine and in bring into being freedoms to which we can aspire, ensure justice and social justice and empowerment, economic and social well-being, create a hopeful future for all? In today's conference, panelists and workshop participants will discuss how race, class, and gender impact the state of democracy today, how we can make wider political participation a reality in the U.S., what democracy means and for whom, whether there are other ways of doing democracy, and how we might re-envision democracy through more participatory rather than representative forms. We are very fortunate to have a group of public figures, political actors, scholars, activists, and artists who will help us address these questions and help us, as our keynote speaker this afternoon, Lonnie Gunier, has put it, reclaim our democratic imagination. I would also like to join Judith in thanking the truly amazing staff of the Center for Research on Women, particularly Gisela Fosado, Hope Dector, and Lucy Trainer. I also want to thank Gisela Fosado and Janet Jacobson for the real thought and planning that went into this, um, this year's conference, along with Kate Bedford, who I believe first suggested the idea, which our wonderful advisory board enthusiastically embraced. I also want to thank Barnard's communication staff, Elizabeth Gildersleeve, David Hobson, and Joanne Kwan for their splendid work. And I want to thank the Barnard students who work at the center while pursuing their own education. They're the ones wearing the t-shirts, which are also for sale, by the way. Uh, Shazira Bola, Lillian Shargin, Susanna Dennison, 
uh, Kaylee Dumbach, Anna Steffens, Chanel Ward, Susanna Woolock. So let me turn this over now to my colleague here at Barnard in the political science department, an expert in political participation and voter behavior who will introduce our first panel, uh, Lorraine Minai. Thank you very much. I'd also like to welcome everybody to the 33rd Annual Scholar and Feminist Conference uh, and invite you to join us in examining the state of democracy here in the United States. And as been said, we live in uh, very interesting times. Uh, we could face here the very real possibility for the first time, as uh, Nefertiti mentioned, of electing a, a woman or an African-American as president. And I have to say, on the Republican side, it's interesting, uh, the likely candidate looks to be someone who, uh, for the first time, at least in my adult life, uh, could be someone who is not an evangelist for regressive uh, religious conservative interests. What's more, and what's so very encouraging, is that the very real energy pushing these events is coming from young people who, I think, see the future that their elders are creating for them and know that they can't accept it. Uh, you know, in the last two months, in the 18 primary contests that we've had, uh, youth turnout, that's the under 30 turnout, is up by 170%. It was up by over 400% in Connecticut. In, in a number of states, it's been uh, that high. So for a very long time now, the United States has promoted democracy around the world. Uh, and indeed, we've seen the birth of democracy in many countries since the Second World War. But far too often, the United States has tried to export democracy through the barrel of a gun. And I was thinking, you know, what if democracy were a commodity that we sold on the open global market? Would anybody buy it? Certainly, one appealing feature of American democracy is the space that we do have for critical thinking and for dissent. Spaces that we create at places like this, at Barnard and at, at institutions of learning. And we in the university not only enjoy this space and practice our work in this space, but we are obligated to use it in ways that facilitate free speech and critical thinking in the larger society. And so, uh, to help facilitate it this morning, um, our morning panel is entitled, Is Democracy Democratic? And to help stimulate our thinking uh, about the ways our own democracy is flawed, we have assembled an eclectic but stellar panel of women who are working in a variety of different institutions and organizations and are here to share their perspective from their own work uh, on the state of American democracy. So I'd like to introduce you to each of them briefly, and then they will speak for about uh, 10 minutes. And I think in the interest of time, we'll, we'll just go right to the audience, uh, to your questions. And we have a microphone here. Uh, we would ask that you uh, come up and, and, and tell us who you are um, and make your comments and, and questions for the panel. So first, our first speaker will be Nancy Abudu, who is on my far left. And Nancy is the staff counsel with the ACLU Voting Rights Project in Atlanta, which uh, has a long history of being in the forefront of voting rights litigation in the United States. Um, she's 
got a specialization in felony disenfranchisement, so we'll hear about her work today. Next to Nancy is Sally Cohn, who is the director of the Movement Vision Project of the Center for Community Change. Uh, this is a national project that Nancy directs, uh, supporting grassroots community leaders and advocates from across the United States to think about new visionary ideas for the future. Um, Nancy's, uh, I'm sorry, Sally, forgive me, Sally is also uh, a regular contributor to a number of uh, internet sites that I'm sure you're familiar with, the Huffington Post and Common Dreams, Alternet, and Tom Paine. Um, and she has also served as the executive director of the Third Wave Foundation, which is a leading young women's organization in the United States. Next to Sally is Christine Sierra. And Christine is a professor of political science at the University of New Mexico. Um, she is an expert on Latino politics uh, and Chicano politics. She co-wrote and co-produced a very interesting video on uh, the election of the first woman as mayor of Santa Fe. And for the last three years, Christine has been the principal investigator of a very interesting multi-year project to examine elected officials of color in the United States. This is a big project funded by the Ford Foundation. And it has a special emphasis on women of color. It's called the Gender and Multicultural Leadership Project. And it has a website, gmcl.org. And Christine will, I think, probably share with us some of her work uh, on that project. Next to Christine is someone who is familiar to Barnard, um, State Senator Liz Kruger, who was first elected to the New York State Senate in February of 2002 and is currently a chair of Minority Program Development. She's also the ranking Democratic member of the Senate Standing Committee on Housing, Construction, and Community Development. And as you know, if you know Liz and know her work, you know that she's a strong advocate for what I would call decency uh, in, in, in a democratic society. And by that, I mean she's a strong advocate for tenants' rights, affordable housing, improved access to health care, prescription drug coverage, social services, open government, and more equitable funding for public education. And our last panelist is joining us from Philadelphia. Sitting next to uh, Senator Kruger is Signe Wilkinson. And Signe is the editorial cartoonist at the Philadelphia Daily News. Um, she's a syndicated cartoonist. She's uh, just developed a new comic strip called Family Tree which uh, you can look at online. And Signe is also the recipient in 1992, the first woman to receive a Pulitzer Prize for editorial cartoons. So we have a very stellar panel, as I say. I would like to turn it right over to them uh, and then have you join us in your questions and comments. Thank you. <laughs> Well, good morning, everyone. I would like to thank the Center for inviting me to participate in this panel and this conference on an issue, of course, that is very timely and that concerns all of us as we look towards the future of our country. Although the Voting Rights Project for the ACLU has been in existence since 1966, our office was created to help enforce the Voting Rights Act of 1965 our work has expanded beyond that, and so we've been dealing with issues regarding um, 
photo ID requirements that many states have implemented. We've also been dealing with the issue of voter technology and the machines or levers, as I hear in uh, New York you all still use with respect to voting. But my comments today for my 10 minutes are just going to focus on the issue of felon disfranchisement, which is the denial of voting rights to anyone who has been convicted of a crime. The U.S. Constitution allows states to deny people voting rights if they have been convicted of crimes. And that provision in the Constitution was first enacted and ratified in 1868. And the reason why that date is important is because it's following the Civil War, following the emancipation of black people in this country, and therefore a lot of states in response to having to allow African Americans to vote enacted a lot of criminal codes, which took the place of saying, well, we can't deny you the right to vote because of your race, but we're going to criminalize behavior that we think African Americans engage in more than whites do. So you had situations where, you know, crimes such as beating your wife or loitering were considered crimes that African Americans engaged in, and crimes such as murder, which whites were found to commit a lot more, were never crimes that were disfranchising. And so the racial history of felon disfranchisement is very important when we look at the interaction between voting rights and the criminal justice system today. What we have, the landscape right now, is that almost every state in the United States denies voting rights based on a criminal conviction. The two states which do not are Maine and Vermont, and I'll also note that Puerto Rico, in, though, in Maine, Vermont, and Puerto Rico, even if you are in prison, you still have the right to vote. And so these places serve as examples that it can be done. Someone who is incarcerated can actually cast a ballot and participate in the political process that plays a role in the education system, health care, etc. There was a recent New York Times article, actually Thursday, when I read it, I thought, wow, this is great in preparation for my, my presentation, finding that over 1 in 100 Americans is currently behind bars. And when we look at those numbers, they increase even more when you take race into consideration and when you take class. Nationally, over 50% of those people who are, at the time of sentencing, involved in the system, prosecuted, arrested, whatever, by the time they get before that judge, over 50% of them qualify for indigent defense, for a public defender, which means that they don't even have enough money to hire someone to defend them in a criminal case. And so when you get that population of people who are in prison, they've already been disfranchised when you look at, again, the economic, the educational, the healthcare system, and then you put them in the criminal justice system, go through that process, which we know, I think everyone can agree, is not really about rehabilitation today. And then you, and then you further disfranchise them by taking away their right to vote. We really see that the system is creating a permanent underclass, what I would say, a permanent underclass when it comes to the society that we live in. When it comes to women, there's a, a report that came out from the Women's, Policy, Women's Prison Association that found that in 2006, 2.4 million women were arrested, involved in the criminal justice system, and over 200,000 of those women were incarcerated due to drug-related crimes. 
And so again, the issue of the criminal justice system and the impact of this war on drugs, which I would again argue is, is not very successful, again is interplaying when it comes to who can have a say with respect to the laws that we all live by. Now there are a lot of things that the ACLU in collaboration with other organizations that we've done to try to improve this situation. Our office, the Voting Rights Project, our focus has been primarily on litigation. And the litigation in the area of felon disfranchisement spans over 200 years. We have cases dating from the very late 1800s trying to challenge felon disfranchisement, but unfortunately with not a lot of success. There have been cases brought trying to argue that when you look at the racial discrimination or disparities, within the criminal justice system, and then you combine that with the right to vote, it results in racial discrimination or at least in the dilution of minority voting strength. Unfortunately, a lot of those cases have not been successful. Um, there is one pending right now coming out of Washington State, and we're hoping that the Federal Court of Appeals that is looking at it will rule in our favor but the uh, federal bench right now is, is not very friendly when it comes to progressive ideas. There's also been challenges, to, some of which I've brought, my office has, has brought, challenging the requirement that many states have that people pay victim restitution and court fines before they get their voting rights restored. Georgia, where I live, requires not only that you complete prison, parole, and probation, but that you also pay any legal financial obligations associated with your sentence. And of course the ACLU maintains the position that a victim should definitely get whatever compensation is due to them, but that that monetary obligation has absolutely nothing to do with voting. And therefore we've argued that it's unconstitutional as a poll tax and also as a violation of the Voting Rights Act. And then again, with the statistic that I mentioned earlier about who are, who the, the, the people or the economic situation of the people being caught up in the criminal justice system, we use that to support our argument even more that um, monetary obligations shouldn't have anything to do with voting. Um, we've also tried to narrow the scope of crimes that um, are allowed to be disfranchised. And we have a case in Arizona, kind of novel theory about saying, you know, when Congress enacted the 14th Amendment of the Constitution, it had no idea that you would end up with over, you know, 2 million people in the prison system, or again, the racial disparities, the class disparities. We've also tried to do legislation, and that really has been where we've seen the greatest success. In Rhode Island, the people of Rhode Island agreed to amend the Constitution to allow people to vote upon release from prison. Maryland, we saw success where before they had permanent ban based on your crime, they had um, waiting periods for when you were released. All of that is now done away with, and people, although it's not a simple process, it's a much faster process than it used to be. We've also seen some success in states like Iowa. Iowa was a state that had a permanent ban. And then a few years ago, the governor issued an executive order saying that once you've completed your sentence, you should have automatic restoration of your rights. We've also seen some changes in Florida. Florida with the, you know, for years the ACLU of Florida and other groups pushed Governor Jeb Bush to try to do something. I mean, you probably all remember the election 
where so many people were told that they were purged from the list because they had a conviction, and yet they'd never been, you know, even arrested for a crime. And so now in Florida is a supposedly streamlined process. We're seeing some problems with respect to the bureaucracy and getting the applications actually completed, but we're hoping that that will at least enable more people to participate in the process. And then we're also trying to work with Department of Corrections so that the paperwork, getting someone's name back on the voter rolls actually happens. And in Georgia, we were successful in getting some of the Department of Correction officials to actually include voter registration forms in the exit papers. I get calls from people who've been released from prison who think that they no longer have their right to vote. In a lot of states, that's not true. There is a restoration process. The state government is just not doing enough to inform them or educate them of what their rights are. So I had a whole bunch of other stuff, <laughs> but um, hopefully during discussion we can get to that. Thank you. Uh, good morning, everyone. Good morning. All right, come on, guys. It's Saturday morning. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Thank you. Uh, my name is Sally Cohn. Uh, I work at the Center for Community Change, where I uh, direct a project called the Movement Vision Lab, which was described before. Um, and I want to thank the organizers of the conference. When I, I sort of was here a few years ago, and I've always thought that the scholar and the feminist was sounded like the beginning of a good joke. You know, like the scholar and the feminist walked into a bar. And <laughs> it's too early to come up with the end of that one, but. Um, <laughs> But, you know, think amongst it if I say something boring. Uh, <laughs> I actually want to thank, uh, in addition to thanking the staff, uh, thank all of you. I think it's, it really says something that you all come out on a Saturday morning to talk about race and class and gender, and it actually is a very hopeful sign uh, for our democracy that you're all here. So thank you for being here. Um, all right, so the question is, is democracy democratic? So Palo Alto, California, isn't exactly the place that comes to mind. <laughs> when we think of disenfranchised communities outside the democratic process, right? They have a median household income of $90,000, which is twice the national average. The population is 75% white. So Palo Alto doesn't exactly evoke the images of African-American ex-felons being turned away at the polls or Latino immigrants uh, intimidated away from the voting booth, right? But still, since 2003, a group of Palo Alto residents has been working with the mayor and city officials to increase democratic participation in government. They actually created a platform. They got it ratified by the Kiwanis Club and the PTA and the Senior Services Association, calling for city council to make civic engagement for the common good an official Palo Alto government priority. So what's interesting is, in mid-January, just this past mid-January, the city council adopted civic engagement as a top priority. But they left off the common good part and the residents were pissed. So in an op-ed protesting this omission, uh, two of the local leaders in this campaign wrote that the common good is a substantive matter. It's a key component of the democratic process. The common good can be an exercise in detaching a personal perspective for a moment and asking the question, where is the community in my argument and how is it being built? Decisions then are shaped to serve the community as a whole not just the aims of the segment. So what's interesting about Palo Alto is that improving democracy here isn't just defined as improving technical aspects, right? Registration options, information of voters, voting booth systems. 
nor is improving democracy solely defined as making the process more inclusive. So that's clearly a part of it. In this example, improving democracy is defined as shifting the moral framework of voters, citizens and participants more generally, from narrow individualistic priorities to community values and the common good. After all, right, the founding definition of democracy in our nation isn't just of the people and by the people, it's what? For the people. So for democracy to be truly democratic, people have to be acting not just in their own narrowly construed self-interest, but for the greater good. In fact, understanding their interests to be inherently intertwined with the greater good, which is, of course, why we form nations and towns and even families in the first place, right? Because we understand the benefit of our faiths being linked with others. So over the past century, we've managed more and more to include those communities and in democratic institutions that were once kept at the gates. But still, has our democracy in turn become more democratic? Around the time of the New Deal in the 1930s, women had just been granted the right to vote, and African Americans who were enfranchised a full 50 years earlier were increasingly uh, able to stretch their political and social muscles in the forming of the NAACP, the burgeoning of the Harlem Renaissance. So when Franklin Delano Roosevelt uh, decided to staunch the hemorrhaging economy, with a set of policies aimed at redistributing wealth away from big business and towards the pockets of American families and workers, it was a final warning sign for the ruling corporate elite that the balance of power and resources might be becoming altogether too equitable for them to stomach. So from the late 1930s onward, big business and moneyed elites pushed a narrative of extreme individualism and laissez-faire free market capitalism. There's an emphasis on that notion of free, the sort of market defined as the space of individuals. The message then was what it remains today. You have to pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You don't know any, owe anything to anyone else. There's no such thing as mutual responsibility. And the market, the land of the free individuals, is good. And government, the land of dependent losers, is bad. All right, so fast forward to, for instance, just after September 11th, when the president calls on Americans not to see the attacks on the World Trade Center and the Pentagon as an opportunity to empathize with communities around the world that have been victims of violence, nor uh, an opportunity for us to see our need to build relationships and mutual respect with other nations in a shrinking globe, no, he tells us to go shopping, right? Emphasizing that individual action is the solution to our problem, and placing us in the role of isolated, competitive consumers rather than connected citizens. And so our response to this individualistic storyline those of us who want justice and fairness and inclusion and democracy? Well, see, in many cases, we drank the same Kool-Aid. So arguably, in the 1960s and 70s, and increasingly through the 80s and the 90s, much of our emphasis on rights construed <clears throat> justice as winning improvements for discrete communities, African Americans, women, etc., or even individuals within those communities. So for instance, uh, creating recourse in the form of individual legal action. Rhetorically, of course, we would say, and we would mean that, you know, gay rights legislation is good for the country as a whole, right? But in practical terms, we're really talking about gay people getting there. And we not only opened the door, but held it open to our causes being written off as special rights. And that critique was, in many ways, invalid, but in some ways, quite right. We had failed to define a more just and fair and equitable America as being in the interest of everyone as opposed to just those who are most on the losing end of the current arrangement. 
we fell into the trap of individualism rather than reminding the nation of our collectivist values. The pursuit of the common good that has not only run through native traditions since the earliest times, but through every page of our nation's story, as we have sought together to do better than we ever could have dreamt alone. Individuals working for, together for the common good is the defining story of our nation. So what if the common good was the defining principle of our democracy? What would that look like? Not only would we make it easier for people everywhere from every community to participate in democracy, from the ballot box to Congress and in between, but the content of their participation would change. Rural white communities in upstate New York, desperate for jobs, wouldn't vote to bring private prisons to town because they demand economic development that helps them while not hurting inner-city African-American men and Latinos facing over-incarceration. Rural voters would reject ethanol subsidies that are not only driving family farmers out of business by underwriting factory farms, but creating fuel that actually causes more pollution than it solves and poisons all of our oxygen. And wealthy folks in Palo Alto would vote for a progressive income tax, demanding a society where prosperity comes from hard work and opportunity, not inequality and hoarding. So for democracy to be democratic, there's no question it has to include women and people of color and immigrants in all the communities that have been historically locked out of the process. And for democracy to be democratic, there's no question we have to fix the mechanisms of voting and create new paths for people to participate in governments. But those changes, while necessary, are not quite sufficient. For democracy can never be truly democratic until all of us, no matter which group we identify with, act in the interest of the whole. Democracy will only truly be democratic when we all act for the greater good in the spirit of community values. Thanks. Well, good morning, and it is truly an honor uh, to be here. I uh, thank you very much for this special invitation uh, to be here this morning. Uh, I feel a little extra pressure right now because Sally introduced the possibility of a joke about a, the scholar and the feminist, and since I'm one and the same, uh, I figured I should come up with the answer, but uh, I'll need a, a, a margarita or something before I figure that one out. Um, I've been asked to address the state of democracy for the nation's Latino uh, population. So I started thinking about this, and I thought, you know, this question is really complicated. The answer is really complicated. I came up with some uh, quick uh, responses. The state of democracy for Latinos and Latinas is improving. It is energizing. It is frustrating. And it is potentially transformative. So today I want to seize upon a sense of enthusiasm. I recognize that obstacles and constraints are embedded in our political system. They continue to restrict Latino participation uh, in the body politic. We are certainly going to address and have already addressed a number of those obstacles. I also am quite well aware that certain demographic characteristics of the population itself depress its participation in voting and other participatory activities. But this election cycle has drawn more serious attention to the importance and role of the Latino vote and Latino and Latina political actors more than any other national election to date. Here we are in March, and the nation is turning its attention to next Tuesday's round of primaries. They continue with real 
uh, possibilities for important outcomes. And Latinos and Latinas in Texas, my home state, uh, my native state, are front and center in the national spotlight. And I've had, I can't tell you, I've had to talk to my mom, my sister, my brother, my sister-in-law, and they're voting for different candidates. <laughs> my sense is that many sectors in the Latino population are caught up in this exciting and exceptional moment. Well, signs are everywhere. It, they are in Latino pop culture. We're getting reggaeton tunes and corridos, viva Obama, you know, and on YouTube. I mean, this is like, you know, we're, we're, the Latino scholars, we're like, you know, trying to figure out how to keep up so we can tell our students about this thing. Or when they ask us, we know the answers. Uh, there has been exceptional turnout in this primary season. Latinos have increased their proportion of the voting electorate, and I would mention California in particular. Uh, Latinos in voting in California in 04 in the primary were 16% of the electorate. This time they were 30% of the electorate, much closer to their actual proportion uh, in the state population. Democratic Party candidates, Clinton and Obama, are actively seeking the Latino vote with some substance behind it. They're making personal visits, both of them, in places that you would have never guessed before. I mean, my sister-in-law's from this little tiny town in South Texas, Robstown. Hillary Clinton went to Robstown. <laughs> now, why in the world did she do that? Well, maybe that says something about her campaign in Texas, but nevertheless, it was packed with people, enthusiastic supporters to greet her. Um, they, they, the candidates are also buying media ads and on Spanish and English language radio and TV, they are seeking Latina and Latino endorsements as never before, and I think addressing Latino-specific issues a little bit more directly. Latinas play a critical role in this excitement and in this movement, and I would say at the grassroots level and also at the decision-making or highest levels of, of this electoral season. Let me give you some examples. In terms of campaign staff, Okay, Patty Solis Doyle uh, isn't around anymore as a major advisor to Hillary Clinton, but Maria Echeveste is. We knew each other at Stanford, and she is still a very strong supporter and advisor to Hillary Clinton. Latina elected officials are found in both camps. In our famous sister act in the U.S. Congress, Congresswoman Loretta Sanchez from California is for Clinton, and Linda, her hermana, is for Obama. Uh, organizational Latina leaders, or leader, Latinas who are organizational leaders, past and present, are highly involved. Dolores Huerta is going all across the Southwest, probably in other parts of the country as well. She's the co-founder of the United Farm Workers Union and a very uh, strong advocate for Hillary Clinton. And Rosa Rosales, uh, a, a friend and colleague, she's actually married to a Chicano political scientist that I know very well in, in San Antonio. She's president of LULAC, one of the largest civil rights organizations for Mexican Americans and other Latinos. Uh, and she has weighed in very heavily, particularly in Texas. Latina voters also are very prominent in this election season, and they are outvoting their male counterparts. The Pew Hispanic Center has produced a very good report, and it's on their website, of uh, exit poll results of the Super Tuesday participation in the states. They found that Hispanic women constituted 56% uh, 
of the Hispanic voting electorate in primaries and caucuses on that day. So we have an energized and involved Latina and Latino electorate. But of course, the state of American democracy should not be judged solely on its voting process, and especially at one point in time. It is important to assess opportunities for broader and deeper democratic participation. I want to draw our attention then to suggest that um, we need to address both types of what I think are featured in this uh, conversation today are representative democracy looking at our system of voting and elections and campaigns and participatory democracy, a more inclusive term to look at collective mobilization as well. Let me mention a couple of things where I still find energy and optimism in terms of participatory democracy for Latinos and Latinas. Let me draw your attention back to those immigrant rights marches in the spring of 2006. They were repeated somewhat in 2007. But here we can see the germination, the generation of hope and optimism among a people who took to the streets with lots at stake lots to lose in the midst of a very hostile climate, to protest a federal law that would criminalize their very status uh, of uh, being undocumented. And we see this climate now continuing, not necessarily at the federal level, although there are immigrant raids being conducted by Homeland Security, but we now have states and localities engaged in restrictionist uh, immigration uh, policies. The one of the slogans of those marches in 2006 were was "Ahora marchamos, mañana votamos." Today we march, tomorrow we vote. What a clever and and powerful um, saying, but it is easier said than done. Just uh, to mention, non-citizenship remains a major obstacle to participation for Latinos across the country. Their youthfulness, as we know, although notwithstanding the wonderful engagement of youth, the fact is that Latinos are a very young population and special attention has to be paid to getting them out to vote. Language issues, voter ID issues, and of course the same old problems of lower income and educational levels persist as obstacles. There are some changes. I would just mention that naturalizations, uh, naturalization applications are increasing, uh, and so that would suggest that legal immigrants are excited about joining into the formal political process of voting. So let me, there are some other things that I'd like to talk about, but in, for the sake of time, let me just mention that my ultimate point is that I think we have to find ways to assure a comprehensive democracy. Merging the value and impact of collective mobilization with the practice of politics in the electoral arena. And Latinas are primed to take a leading role in these endeavors. They are natural leaders in many of their communities at the grassroots, and as they, though they remain underrepresented in political office, they are increasing at a rapid rate, more rapidly than, a faster rate than their male counterparts, 
and they are now constituting about a third of all Hispanic elected officials in the country. That is a higher percentage than white women have vis-a-vis the white elected officialdom. So comprehensive democracy is my charge for us to think about, to move from one sphere to the other, to have interaction and promote the strength uh, the, the strength and the interaction and connectedness between participatory democracy and representative democracy. I think if that, we can do that, the state of American democracy will become broader and deeper and have a transformative impact on American politics. Thank you. Good morning. Well, I'm clearly not a scholar, so I must be a feminist um, to have gotten. I guess that's my punchline for you, too. Um, and I want to thank the women who spoke before me. Because as I told my family who's here today, that I had not planned for this event. I've had a busy week. And everyone else has carefully typed notes, and you'll see my scribbles. Um, so they had me thinking about a lot of these issues. And, and Nancy started out with the issue of prisoners' disenfranchisement. And I want to spin another angle on prisoners and democracy. In the state of New York, we have something called the Rockefeller Drug Laws, which keep nonviolent drug offenders in jail for extended periods of time. And my colleagues from upstate New York, where all the prisons are, even, all the, even though all the people in the prisons come from New York City, explain very objectively, one, the only economic development model they've had in their communities in 30 years is building prisons and working at prisons. So if the crime rate's going down, down here, damn it, we just have to keep people in prison longer. And they actually say it that way. And then, of course, the way we gerrymander districts in, pol in politics in New York State, you are counted as a person in the address you're currently at. Therefore, all those New York City residents living in upstate prisons are counted towards the population for increasing the number of Republican senators upstate New York even though, of course, we know that the population has been decreasing in upstate New York for decades, perhaps because the only economic development model is prison. Um, <laughs> just a thought. Um, so that, in fact, it's not just disenfranchisement of human beings' right to vote. It's actually using prisoners as your chattel for your redistricting exercises and your model of getting somebody jobs. Um, so... You know, I, I share your concern, but I take the, step, um, the argument further that, in fact, we are using um, our prison population and our prison policies for very specific political reasons, um, but not what I would call democratic reasons. Um, that I, I love the story about uh, civic engagement for the public good out of Palo Alto, California, because I would argue that what's really critical for all of us to understand is if we just get people to vote, but they have no idea what's going on in their government, and they think they've done their civic duty simply by showing up once a year or once every other year to vote for somebody, they've equally flunked the test. And when I first started running for office a few years ago, I've been in the state senate now for six years, um, I ran into um, a libertarian candidate on the street, and I was arguing for increased voter participation and he was arguing against it. He said, what do you want people who have no idea what's going on to be voters? He goes, the libertarian philosophy is to have smaller numbers of voters, but they'll be serious about the assignment. And at the time, I must admit, I thought, 
This is a cynical worldview about democracy on his part. Um, and in fact, he wasn't a serious candidate against me. It was the Republican Party I was worried about, not the Libertarian Party. Um, but in fact, it's an interesting perspective from years in that my own frustration that we don't have enough people who understand civic engagement or the public good or the role of government in it or their role in it. So I was recently out on the streets before the New York State primary um, campaigning early in the morning at subway stops, in fact, for Hillary Clinton, whom I'm a delegate for. Um, but people were walking by and going, I'm apolitical. Now, I happen to represent the east side in Midtown, so it's one of the wealthiest districts in the state of New York. And in fact, so I have lots of young professionals. Many of them probably went to Columbia, not Barnard, because women never say that to me on the streets, only men. Um, but I had all these men walking by going, what do I care about government? It has nothing to do with my life. And see, I used to be polite on the streets, even nervous. Now I just whip people around. So I'm like, stop, talk to me. What are you talking about? Government has nothing to do with your life. I said, do you care if the police and fire show up if something happens at your building? Do you use the public transportation system? Do you imagine using the school system? Do you actually care whether clean water comes out of your tap in the morning to shave before you go to work? Do you care whether you have air to breathe? And by then, they're like, oh my god, what have I done? It's 7 in the morning. I haven't had coffee. I'm just trying to get on the train. Um, but in fact, people don't grasp that democracy are those fundamental issues for them. And they don't understand the relationship between government and those issues in their lives. And we're, we're not doing our job. I would argue since I'm an elected official, I'm not doing my job well enough if we don't get people to understand that. And that it is a huge issue who represents you. It is a huge issue to ensure that there is more participation, um, that there are more people who look like all of us sitting at the table when the decisions are made. There are only 11 women in the New York State Senate. There's 62 of us. Um, it is no question in my mind that we would have different government and we'd be debating different issues if there were more women at the table, if there were more people of color at the table. Um, perhaps my most absurd example from last week is I've been trying to do this bill for three years on a, a breastfeeding bill of rights just to ensure that women get the information they need to know about in order to assist them to be breastfeeders. And I'm actually having discussions with my colleagues. Does your bill have to say the word nipple in it? <laughs> well, yes, because that's the part of the breast that's used for breastfeeding. Um, so it's, it's a silly example in the realm of big picture, but in fact, I think it's my example of the week of what's wrong with not having more women participating um, in the political process. Um, and, and I do use my humor to get me through what can sometimes be, you know, some tough days out there. But I do spend a lot of my time trying to involve young people, people in civic engagement. I run a youth civics program with high school students um, where we actually go through, you know, what is the role of state government in their lives? How can they get involved? Evaluating bills. We actually end with a mock state senate at the end of the program where they debate real bills. Um, every year they do a better job debating than we actually do in the New York State Senate. So it's either a little embarrassing or a highlight again about how important it is to get more young people involved in the political process. Um, but I'm sincere about that in a room filled with, I see many young women here and many young women of color. I also spend a decent amount of my time 
with an organization called Eleanor Roosevelt Legacy Committee, which is New York State's EMILY's List, um, supporting women to explore running for office and then, in fact, providing campaign assistance and financing for pro-choice Democratic women running for anything from sheriff, we've done some women sheriffs in upstate New York, to um, regional transportation supervisor, superintendents who were elected, to state legislators, to county legislators, city council members, mayors, um, and perhaps someday a governor in New York State, um, and other statewide offices, because we're not much better than a lot of other states statistically on that. Um, but it is so important for women to understand that it's a tough game and you have to have a thick skin, um, but you have to get involved. And you have to get involved far more than just looking at whether you're voting or not. So it's one of my pet peeves. Everybody runs around and counts up the numbers of how many people they've registered to vote. And of course, that's the first step. But nobody ever thinks you have to do, or people have finally learned you have to do the follow-up and actually bring them out to vote. Um, but that, that's really the most basic concept, that we need to get people to understand that politics and government is a 365-day assignment. Because otherwise, you just keep putting people into office, and they might look more like you, but you'll be just as irritated with them um, at the end of a couple of years as you were of the, of the other folks. And I think perhaps that's another lesson for discussing the state of democracy, that hopefully we are getting to the point where race and gender are less of a block to being able to be participatory, but that that's not an answer in its own right. And, and I have to say, it is very, very exciting to me that the next president of the United States should be either a woman or a man of color. Now, if that other guy, what's his name, McCain wins, um, I think, one, we have some serious problems facing us, but two, we really have to evaluate where we are in relationship to the discussion today about the role of gender um, and race in our society. Uh, because there's no question, as a Democrat, this is our race to lose, and if we lose it, um, we have some very, very hard questions to ask, which I think goes back to then, I think you use the term transformative, the necessity of moving from a model of transactional politics to a model of transformational politics. And you know what? The right-wing Republicans and evangelicals got it down pretty well and pulled it off for about 35 years now. So now, you used to say you can never talk politics or religion, but you still can't talk politics, but apparently everyone talks religion. Um, and so we've actually transformed the debate in this country to one where you know, really a small universe of right-wing crazies are controlling the political dialogue, the political debate, um, how everyone in politics is talking about issues, how everyone out there as voters are thinking about issues. So I was uh, quoted recently in a newspaper in the city of New York about and the importance of moving towards a more progressive model of taxation. And at the same time, we were running a special election last week in upstate New York, which were, in fact, the Democrat won for the first time in 128 years in that district. Um, it was a great week. We're now only one seat away from tying in the New York State Senate and two seats from the majority. Um, and that hasn't actually happened since 1939. People forget that the Republicans have controlled uh, much of the state since 1939 because we live here in the ghetto of New York City and we don't understand that concept. Um, but I was actually used then, my quote about progressive taxation was used in a TV commercial by the Republicans in Oswego 
saying, you know, if people like liberal Liz Kruger get to take, yeah, I know, exactly, were to be in control of the state of New York, she wants to raise your taxes. And, you know, their, our, our Democrats' campaign called, what did you say? What have you done? I said, I said, progressive taxation. I didn't even say raise anyone's taxes. And for the record, if we had a progressive tax system in New York State, my district's taxes would go up. Oswego's taxes would go down. They're all poor farmers up there. Um, so I was like, actually, progressive taxation would be really good um, for the farmers of upstate New York. But it's like, no, progressive taxation means you're going to raise my taxes. And so we're so far from even having an understanding of the substantive issues we are facing um, that we have such a long way to go. And I have to stop because I got that little sign that told me to stop so I won't go into some of the other issues. So thank you very much. The, the panel is now going to abandon Signe so that uh, she can show you some of her uh, cartoons. They don't want to be associated with me. <laughs> And frankly, I am here to say that I am completely against the premise of this morning's conference. If the radicals at Barnard and Columbia succeed in creating a truly democratic process, I'm out of work. <laughs> so every panel um, needs someone from the mainstream media because, of course, most of the problems in the world can be traced to the existence of the mainstream media. Whenever I hang out with my liberal friends, which is sometimes often, I am continually reminded that we wouldn't have racism, sexism, poverty, or corporate, or, or um, the, the uh, problems in democracy if it weren't for the MSM's malignant presence. And I admit it, you can blame it all on me. <laughs> but I would just like to point out that before there was the mainstream media, there was no racism, sexism, war poverty, or inequality in our democratic process. What I took from uh, the description of today's conference is that uh, we weren't just thinking about democracy, but actually representation, better representation. And the organizers point out that uh, in Congress today, there are only 86 women congressmen and 16 women senators. But the organizers think this is pathetic. I think it's nirvana. <laughs> I'm from a profession where, as the head of the woman, head of my uh, cartoon syndicate says, well, when I asked her, how many, how many, what percentage of women are uh, cartoonists? She said, oh, maybe 2%. And then she stopped and said, no, 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 that's high. <laughs> when I asked her how she explains such a thing, she gave the uh, help brilliant analysis, I have no idea, zero. Part of the uh, reason it might be illuminated by the fact that in the last month I've had four people come to show me their cartoons. One was a woman. 
And that's, I think, high because more women come to me than they do my brethren cartoonists. My theory is that women have a deep sense of the absurd, raising children, living with men, working a day in the real world. You have to. But it's also my observation that women don't like to go for the jugular the same way men do. Once you've spent 20 years breaking up fist fights among your children, perhaps picking fights seems less amusing. And as one friend pointed out, if women aren't going to be nice, who is? <laughs> that isn't to say that there aren't women in the satire game. I think women are just too smart to go into my dead-end, print-oriented end of the field. Instead, like Tina Fey, they go directly to broadcast, to TV and to the movies, where they can reach millions more people uh, in a Saturday Night Live, and then they get to live forever on YouTube. <laughs> I don't. If I'd been clever enough to come up with Bitch is the New Black, it might have uh, reached a million readers of, uh, of my cartoons. But uh, Tina Fey instantly gets millions, uh, more than that, on Saturday Night Live, and then, of course, it's uh, amplified by the wonders of modern technology. And I'll point out, Fey's three minutes of humor will also be seen by many millions more than Robin Morgan's equally outraged but more documented essay, Goodbye to All That Number Two, which came out uh, recently, and if you haven't read it, look it up. Although, do wear asbestos gloves, she's really pissed. <laughs> We need Robin Morgans, but let's face it, if you want the other 50% of America to get the message, you need Tina Fey to deliver it. And even though I am no T Tina Fey, I hope my cartoons operate in a similar way, delivering a clear message through humor that gets men and women, male and female, knuckle-draggers and enlightened Barnard grads to take a look at what's going on and perhaps extend democracy as our other panelists have talked about it. Now, I'm going to show a little bit of, uh, of my work. Um, I'm going to take you back in time to when the uh, freshmen at Barnard were learning how to walk. This is the 1992, uh, the day after the election, when uh, the women's vote carried Bill Clinton over the threshold. This is it? This is the year of the woman? <laughs> that was the 1990, that was taken right from the uh, photograph on the steps of the Capitol of, uh, in 1993, when one, two, three, four, five, six women were um, sworn in. And what's the one thing that would keep you from voting for Clinton? Clinton? Hillary's name isn't on the ballot. <laughs> that was from the uh, fall before the election. This is after the election. Hillary, a year in caricature, inauguration, the puppeteer, her hand on the Bible, not Bill's, and the pants in the family. I was taking off on my um, male colleagues' uh, cartoons of Hillary at the election time 
they were repetitive, and they used all these um, cliches. But then she moved on to health care and became St. Hillary for a while, and then she ran into Whitewater, where she became the witch, where um, she still resides in many people's imaginations. Next, feminist martyr or fallen woman? Well, um, after next Tuesday, we, we might get even another caricature. Why soccer moms deserve cabinet positions? Defense, state, hi Pam. Billy would like to apologize for opening that tunnel in Sam's fort. Health and human services, labor and interior, cleaning your room is not a minimum wage job, and transportation. Um, so what do you feminists call it when a woman is a sellout corporate hired gun, ignores inconvenient laws, and sees no moral problems? Equality. <laughs> this was, uh, Lonnie Guineer will remember this, when uh, Zoe Baird was uh, shot down as um, a cabinet member in the Clinton. Now this is a little later. What, this is the true women, reason why women don't run for higher office. What are you hiding in your closet? Unnecessary pair of black pumps number 87, $350 suit that immediately went out of style, and size 6 skirt I keep trying to fit into. Okay, it's sexist, but it's true. <laughs> Um, this is from 1997, when nobody was doing cartoons about Afghanistan, but a, um, you'll remember the Taliban, the famous Taliban, was in power there, and uh, the religious right was pretty much in power here. Unlike you in the decadent West, we don't need to bomb abortion clinics. And this is the extreme pro-life uh, tour and you see the uh, ro uh, red Victoria's Secret catalog is hanging at the upper right, stoned for adultery, lower right. Um, this is one. This is one thing I would point to as having a, a few women in the uh, profession. The, the men really weren't weren't noticing what was going on in the rest of the world with women. Uh, this one I threw in just to get hate mail from all of you. Radical Islam sponsors the Miss Muslim World Contest, Miss Illiteracy, Miss Can't Vote, and Miss Waiting to be Stoned. Uh, this I drew when there was a Miss World Conference in, in uh, Africa, and a hundred people were killed rioting uh, about it. Um, and I put radical there just to differentiate from normal peace-loving Islam, but that really didn't do me any good. I was picketed um, in front of the paper. Even my uh, daughter's history professor was among the picketers. Philadelphia is a small town. Um, but I included here because I think that there really is uh, something women, uh, you know, we talk about solidarity. But as one woman called uh, to complain about this, and I had a long discussion and said, whoops, sorry, you're not allowed to see that, um, said, um, you know, I finally said to her, look, I have absolutely no problem with anyone wearing a headscarf or any other uh, clothing to make them feel closer to their God and their religion. But you wouldn't force me to wear a headscarf, would you? And she paused and said, well, if it was for your own good. And to me, that's something that we, you know, we can... 
we just need to uh, be aware of and uh, deal with as we go down the road. But I don't usually pick on women. I usually pick on George Bush. Here's the Pro-Life Men's Center, what's good for the goose. You must be counseled, see pictures of bombed babies, and have a mandatory waiting period before you can go to war. Unfortunately, he didn't. This is more recent, Bill Clinton. Wait, I'm the black candidate. I mean, co-candidate. I mean... And this was just this week after Tina Fey's diatribe and the the fact that Hillary doesn't look like she's going to make it. Looks like one of us could still be the first female president. Pipe down, you little (laughs) bitch. Let's just say it. And lastly, can't I have both? (laughs) Thank you. Now we have something to think about. Um, Let's have some questions or your comments. If you would uh, like to address a question specifically to one of our panelists, let us know, or if it's just a general question to uh, anyone on the panel. Um, And if if I could ask you only just so that everyone could see, if you wouldn't mind to come up to the microphone right here and uh, tell us who you are. You're first. <laughs> you won. <laughs> I'm Amy Rogers, just concerned citizen. I want to thank Liz for being Liz. Thank you. Uh, thank you very much. I know Moynihan would be very proud of you. And I am. Thank you. Um, my impression is that we no longer teach civics in our school. Um, we didn't call it civics. My parents did. We called it social studies. but. I learned how government works. I'm old enough where I grew up believing I could have an effect and change. So my question is this, am I right? Do we no longer teach civics? And if not, should we? And thirdly, do you think that that would help to make us more active and feel a piece of ownership in the system? We don't really teach civics in the New York City public schools. We seem to still teach it in the private schools, although we have a lot of schools doing community service, which I think is a great model, but they don't tie it into um, why it relates to government and the public good. And so it ends up being, when you're teaching public service requirements, you have to go and volunteer somewhere, you know, where the only response, I think, in too many of the schools that the young people get is, you get a demerit if you don't do it, as opposed to why are you doing it. Um, it's my same concern about uh, what, I'm, and I don't know for the rest of us here on this panel, what we call teach to test in New York City. We've become so obsessed with everything being driven by standardized tests and teaching to test that really they don't test on the public good or your involvement in your society. And so right now, Almost the only argument I could make of how I could get our public schools to do that is to say, we'll put it on the test, and I'm not really in love with another standardized test um, every year. So I think you're right. We used to. I think it's a serious failing that we don't, and I hope that we have a movement to 
push back that that's important in our school system. Thank you. I'd just add that uh, uh, I think it's absolutely right to note the climate uh, for our teachers, in particularly in public schools, with the No Child Left Behind Act uh, and the need to uh, teach to the test. So that reduces their latitude to teach uh, in the way they want. But I'd also add that we need to strengthen the mediating institutions that used to provide for um, skills and for the engagement and the invitation for people to participate, uh, whether they are church groups or community organizations uh, or uh, Kiwanis and other kinds of, uh, of uh, civic organizations. Um, and so much in the nonprofit world has taken a real hit over the last several, year, several years or decades. So I think that the way in which we could foster um, civic engagement is to strengthen our mediating institutions on the local level. Mm -hmm. Hi, my name is Lorraine Cohen, and um, I teach at LaGuardia Community College, which is part of City University of New York. I'm also chapter chair of the union at LaGuardia, of the PSC, uh, which is a very progressive union. Uh, and I'm, I'm, in a, I'm on the executive committee so I, my, uh, of the union. So um, I, I must say I enjoyed all of your presentations a lot. Um, I, I want to address this in part to Sally, but also to some of the other candidates. I believe it was Frederick Douglass who said, power concedes nothing without a struggle. And so the very idea of somehow cultural transformation, which is progressive, committed to social justice and egalitarian, without addressing the extraordinary inequalities of power that have to do a lot with class. And when I say class, I don't just mean organized labor, although I do think organized labor is an important element that gets um, you know, not enough attention from many progressives and many feminists and many women, despite the history of women in the labor movement and so on. But I'm also talking about the unorganized. I'm talking about immigrants, legal and undocumented. I'm talking about people of color, people on public assistance, the employed and the unemployed, who broadly defined constitute the working class. And I just wonder, and, and you know, our labor laws in this country are among the worst. The Bush administration towards labor is among the worst. That the right to organize as a democratic right, as an expansion of democracy. Um, I just wonder if you could uh, comment on that. Thank you. Um, yes, uh, I think uh, you know my so the quick answer is yes and right. So. Um, there's sort of three things that your question makes me think of. So one is, yes, in our country right now, the sort of right to organize, the size of unions in general, um, and the sort of value that we see sort of goes back to this common good notion. The idea that we as workers, as people in general, but as workers are sort of stronger together and can sort of do better together than we can on our own, and therefore there is an advantage to unions, an advantage to collective bargaining, you know, with this sort of rise of extreme individualism, that notion has been thrown out the window. And so all the, the um, institutions that then uh, would adhere to that are also on the decline. 
think that's part of it. Uh, if, if, if you don't mind, there's sort of two other things though that your question kind of uh, suggests and the quote suggests. So one is, I, you know, this, um, and this is sort of part of the nature of this conversation today, um, there's often this, and this is sort of a historic, you know, liberal, center-left, well, is it class, is it race, is it gender, et cetera, et cetera. You know, um, the fact of the matter is, we sort of take like an informal poll, but I don't think that any of us truly thinks that we could have um, a society of economic, true economic equality and, and justice and opportunity without doing something to seriously address issues of racism and sexism and vice versa, right? We could never truly address issues of sexism and, and racism without addressing economic inequality and class. So in a way, and, and if you actually look at the, um, the, the you know, sort of decline of unions and sort of the trouble facing union, you can also apply a race and gender analysis to that too and sort of analyze how the plagues of those unions are in fact because of the persistent problems of racism and sexism. Um, so that's another piece in that. And then, you know, the, the quote you started with, right, is, is such an important quote because it reminds us that the, um, you know, sort of ever, uh, sort of ongoing pursuit of perfection in our democratic process is not just a matter of asking politely, right? Oh, well, please, we'd like to participate. Thank you, you know, and could we have some equality too? Um, you know, this, this, this sort of notion that, and it actually sort of gets to this idea that I think has sort of taken over the kind of, um, uh, you know, sort of centrist, technocratic, uh, you know, compromise at all costs brand of politics, which says, oh, well, if people just had the right information, you know, if we sort of gave the decision makers the right information, they would do the right thing, that of course people want to pursue equality and justice, and they just don't know enough. And, and that's actually, you know, of course there's some truth to that on some level, but on a, on a fundamental level, there is in fact a struggle for power. Those who have power do not want to give it up. That's how they got it in the first place. <laughs> there's, there, you know, and, and so we have to bear in mind that, you know, everything we're talking about isn't just this sort of, well, we'll just kind of say these things rhetorically and sort of inform people and teach people and so on and so forth. It is very much about an organizing process, a political organizing process. It's very much about people who've been at the margins uh, having the, um, you know, sort of both personal empowerment and then structural means of engagement to really challenge power. That's the only way any of this is going to change. If I can throw in, because it was something I wanted to raise before, which is campaign finance laws and the importance of shifting from a model of whoever can buy politicians to a model of democratic process at some level means the majority should rule. So I was having an argument one night with um, someone who works in the real estate lobby. He was saying that we don't get everything because because there's the tyranny of the majority. And I said, the tyranny of the majority? Oh, that means like more people don't agree with you than agree with you. But I pointed out, but not to worry, because you put so much money into politics in New York State that you're actually getting everything you want anyway, which is actually statistically true. And so while, for whatever reasons, when you're in politics, you're always amazed, I'm always amazed, that on public opinion polls, people don't care about campaign finance reform. It's sort of breathtaking how no one cares, and New York State has no campaign finance rules, pretty much. It's the wild, wild west in Albany. If you really want to address your concern and the concerns of equality and democracy, you have to shift, in my opinion, to a clean election, public finance model. And people go, oh, you want us, the taxpayers, to pay for elections? 
It's like it's such a small amount of money when you do the math on actually having a government that at least on paper would be so much closer to be representative of what the concerns of the voters were that I'm always amazed that we people just A, either don't care and don't see the connection to your point, and B, then if you say public financing, you know, they start to keel over, like, oh, we could never do that. Well, in fact, several states do it, and I think they're getting better outcomes because of it. I'm Erin Frederick. I'm a Barnard alumna. Thank you all for being here. And my question is um, from what from what Liz said about the responsibility of voting and getting people to really do their homework and take it seriously and come into the polls informed. Because um, I learned early on that I was in the small minority of people that my parents trained me to actually see what the League of Women Voters said and figure out all the signs. I'm from California, so we have to research all of our ballot initiatives before we vote. So when I ask friends of mine who they're voting for in the primary, they say, well, I'm waiting for, you know, Obama or Hillary or whomever to tell me what they think. And I'm horrified because I feel like this is the one election where each person running is really putting it out there. And all you have to do is watch CNN for 15 minutes and hear one of these incredible speeches and you really know what they stand for. So even now in this election that's engaging so many new people, it seems like it's still not sinking in and people really need it to be spelled out for them. So how do you get people to really listen and, and cut through some of the, the rhetoric and the jargon and really see what's being said. I don't know about here, but in uh, Philadelphia, we have more people at think tanks than we do actually running for government. And uh, they all believe that if, it, if we just had more information out there, people would be better voters, and I don't buy it at all. Personality makes a big, big deal. Look at... Barack Obama and look at Hillary Clinton and look at the turnout. They are brilliant campaigners. They're exciting candidates. If you give people what they want, they'll come to vote. And, and, and it's not because they have really sat down and compared Barack and Hillary's uh, uh, two positions on health care. I bet, you know, one in 10,000 people you stop on the street would be able to really tell you the difference. So um, I just think there's a lot of emotion that goes into a voting, and people have to trust the candidate, they have to like the candidate, and they have to be able to live, feel like they're going to live with them for four years. So, I, I mean, I, I admire you, I admire your family, because you probably buy newspapers, and that's also one in 10,000, but um, uh, I just think that there's some other things going on that maybe don't show up on those lists. Well, it's interesting. Um, I like her. I oh. vote for her. <laughs> <laughs> I live in Philadelphia, though. <laughs> I can't afford your district. No one can. I know. That's no problem. Um, when you were talking, I have young staff in my office, and even though I'm a Hillary delegate, I actually do believe in democracy and everybody's doing what they want. But I have all these young staff who come in every day and go, but he's just more likable. I'm like, I'm sorry, you work for me. You're supposed, no, not you're supposed to do what I say. You're supposed to be more analytical than that in your thought process about who you're supporting for president. But I didn't mean that as a criticism of him, but here's what I've been telling people. Take the five issues that matter most to you. Put it on a grid. Put it on a piece of paper or all of us under 70 who might use spreadsheets. 
those of us who are 90 and using spreadsheets, I so just didn't mean to insult you, I apologize. Um, but probably all the students here are using spreadsheets. So take your five issues that matter the most to you. You know, I happen to think healthcare is one of them, but actually if you're young, maybe it's not, right? So the five that matter most to you in the presidential election. And then go hunting for the positions of the different candidates on those five issues. And there's lots of ways to do that. And, you know, while you're right, nobody's reading newspapers and there's no point in actually trying to get facts out of the TV news because it's entertainment, not news. Um, go on the Internet. Go to think tanks. Go to groups who grade candidates, you know, League of Conservation Voters, on their positions. And start to do homework on those five issues that matter most to you for the two or perhaps three. I'm assuming there's really no Huckabee people in this room, right? Um, two or three. Anybody want to admit that? Um, that the two or three candidates left standing and see what they really stand for. And so make make your own analysis. And you're right, maybe you won't read 52 papers from 52 think tanks, um, but there are ways for you to pretty easily think it through and subset it for yourself. And I think everybody not only <coughs> could do that, but have an obligation to do that. So your parents were right. Um, if, if, I, if I may, just in the interest of time, and since everyone has been waiting a long time standing there, maybe what we could do is have each person uh, ask their question as a group, and then we'll still have you know, 15 minutes at least for the panel to try to address uh, uh, whatever they can on, on those. Um, so if, if that would be okay, if we could get each of you to kind of ask your question, and then we'll get everybody in. Okay. Uh, I agree with Sally Cohn very much that who's ever in power doesn't want to give up power. And who's in power? The white male is in power. So the 51% majority is not in power. And I've been watching this for many years. On the newscast, they have one woman of color, takes care of woman and color, and two white male newscasters. You know, they figured it out. It's not by accident. You look at almost any station, and that's what you'll see, or channel. Uh, and what I saw in this election was media going against Hillary Clinton day after day after day, just in the most horrendous fashion. And when she said that they asked her the first question, and then they made fun of that in the last debate, they asked her all the first questions and gave Obama time to think. Because I noticed that myself. The boy, they're asking her all the first questions. They made her look foolish. They had CNN and a Spanish man on saying Hillary Clinton talked out of both sides of her mouth. He was not a commentator. They put him there on purpose. And this has been going on all year. And I don't see that the women came together in any kind of fashion to help her with this situation. And I was going to say I belong to a Jewish organization called CAMERA because we have a similar thing, but we're not the majority. We're such a little minority looking at the news and seeing the distortion. So my question is, how do we get together and really give somebody a hand and really try to combat this? When she brought it up, suddenly the men were like, oh, I just asked this one, this and that one, that Tim Russell was saying, you know, but if it's not addressed and it's just overlooked like it's business as usual, it was not. And you hear it every day and it starts going in your mind, Oh, yes, yeah, she's this, she's that, she's not human enough. Then she became human. She's too human. She acts too much like every... This is what people tell me. 
she cannot do right because it's a prejudice against women. And that's the bottom line. And to Liz Kruger, this is unrelated to this, we are the highest taxed state in the United States of America. So if you want to help the people here, lower the taxes, look to cut all this spending on things that you don't have to take care of us. Just lower those taxes. We're taxed 11% in New York State. It's extraordinary. And it's bankrupting honest people that get W-2 forms. And we have a tremendous underclass, by the way, people dealing in cash. I prepare taxes, and I see it every single day. And that's the job of the legislators, take care of the roads or whatever else, but don't tax us into poverty. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Let's, if we can, just in the interest of, of time, of course, we never have enough time. We had a very large panel, and everybody is so interesting. But if you could just um, try to come, come to a quick question, and we'll get a good discussion at the end here. Thanks. Hi, my name is Maureen. I'm a senior at Barnard. I'm also Hi, my name is Amreen. Oh, um, I'm a junior at Barnard, and I'm also from upstate near Albany. Um, but my question was for uh, Ms. Wilkinson and Senator Kruger. Um, it really echoes off of what the last question was. Um, but I was wondering, women have um, problems with like their image in the media and in politics. And I was wondering what, what you think women, like what kind of image women need to provoke in order to be taken seriously without being either taken as like a mother nurturer or as like a masculine, like, shark fighter. Um, and so like how can how can we reconcile those images and like really come up with something that can be taken seriously? Thank you. Very good. I'm very concerned with okay. But with the um, impoverished class. And I'm concerned with the usury law. We used to have usury, and most of you people don't know that, where 6%, you couldn't charge more than 6% interest. And now you can go up to 23% and probably more with the credit cards. They come in every day. So my question is, how can we get a usury law? Hi, uh, I'm Margot Lovejoy, and I'm a brand-new American. Um, I've come from a country, Canada, which has... Uh, universal health care, and also a bilingual uh, situation, which I hope to fight for here. Um, but my question has to do with voting. Since I, I was uh, carrying a green card until I got my citizenship, I'm astonished at how many green card holders there are in this country who never bothered <clears throat> to really take it seriously in getting citizenship so they could vote. Um, I remember going back to my class after, since I'm teaching, I went back to my class after doing my interview, and of course I had to read up all about the American Constitution, etc. and I found there was only one student in my class who knew anything about the system of government that we have, so I'd like to encourage the idea that you have, I've forgotten actually who talked about education, but I think it's really, really important. Thank you. Hi, I'm Rebecca Wallach, citizen at large. Um, <laughs> I just want, okay, so I was really involved when I was in college in the lead up to the war in Iraq and really involved in anti-war organizing, and we lost that. In 2004, I worked in Colorado on a youth vote campaign. It was nonpartisan. 
We all worked so hard to register young people and get them out to vote, and we lost that election. And I'm so, I've come out of two big loses, and I still have sided with, it's, it, it's about what you guys have been talking about. It's about the public, it's about public policy, it's about the process, it's about politics. What would you say to people who have gone to the other side and have decided the system doesn't work, it's broken, there's nothing we can do about it, I'm not going to vote, I'm not going to participate? Thank you. Hi, my name is Gus Wenner. I go to Collegiate High School, and this is for Miss Wilkinson. Uh, I don't know the exact numbers, but there was a study saying that the majority of young people get their news from the Daily Show and the Colbert Report. So do you think that there's too much irreverence in our society, or is irreverence a healthy part of any democracy? Thank you. Hi, I'm Kari Belsheim, and I actually go to NYU. So, <laughs> surprise. Um, Who let you in? <laughs> Um, we were talking about the difference between participation for participation's sake versus becoming an educated voter. And um, as I've been in college, I find that I've become really involved with radical groups. And it sort of has to do with um, what she just asked. But um, instead of giving me more faith in the system, it just sort of made me sort of lose it um, because there's so many built-in blocks against progression in our government. And so I guess similar to that question, I would ask, what would you say to liberals and radicals who have lost faith in this? Thank you. Hi, I'm Jack Orleans. I'm a distributor of Revolution newspaper. And I, I think what the person who went right before me said kind of resonates uh, with me about pe young people losing their faith in the system. I actually think a lot more of that needs to happen because this system right now is going on a tirade around the world. This country has legalized torture and done away with habeas corpus. Not even Hitler did that. And I think the discussion that's going on in the room needs to be shifted. Um, I, there's a picture that I've seen that's on the, um, one of the brochures I got in the folder that has um, you know, women at Barnard in 1968 in the street. And I think that is actually much more in line with how things are changed in the world. And to the degree people are talking about revolution, and to the degree people at that time were talking about communism, I think it had a lot to do with actually moving society forward. Now, if you look at the election season and you look at the Democratic primaries, I, in the New York Times Magazine a couple weeks ago, there was a thing in there where Somebody got up at one of the debates, maybe people saw that this was when Edwards was in it, and they asked all three candidates, will you withdraw troops from Iraq, all troops from Iraq, in your first term at all? And none of them said yes. I just think that this is a, this is a framework that people need to bust out of. Um, uh, so anyway, I want to invite people to an event next Sunday called Re-Envisioning Revolution and Communism. Um, what is Bob Avakian's new synthesis? It's at St. Paul and St. Andrew's Church at 86 in West End. And uh, people should talk to me if they're you know, interested in the, getting revolution on the agenda in this country. Um, and I'd also like to hear what the speakers have to say about what is their idea of revolution and is it something that people even ought to be talking about? Because I think it's been ruled off the debate and I want to get it back on. Okay. Thank you. Um, so, you know, they say the newscaster, yeah, she's black and she's a woman. But maybe she's there because she worked for it. I was born two things in Brooklyn that I'm not necessarily proud of, but I was born that. I was born a Yankee fan, 
and I was born a Democrat. But I think that Condoleezza Rice gets the short end for the stick for the very fact that she worked for what she got. Hillary, Bill ruined the whole thing. Why was he talking in the first place? Then people want to say, well, you want to shoot Hillary for Bill? Yeah, because that's her choice. A man messed with me, I put him down. I'm not going to ride him nowhere unless, you know, you know what I'm saying? So, like, you know, Hillary's thing is, why was, why was Bill running? Is Bill running? You know what I mean? And I would want to vote for a woman. But Hillary, it seems to me she didn't work for nothing. You know? Condoleezza Rice, I'm not a Republican, but what I could tell, she worked for what she got. You know? And maybe McCain will pull that Trump card. She, the vice president, will give a lot of people something to think about. Thank you. My name, my name is Darcy Scheiber Knowles. I'm a Barnard alumna. And my question for you all is, um, what can be done from a democracy perspective about the failure, as I see it, of our system of checks and balances? This election um, is about the presidency, uh, but I'm, I'm curious about the role of Congress in um, checking and balancing the failures of our presidency. So if you could speak to that, too. Thank you, audience. Um, we've, okay, we we've just got a few more uh, minutes. We can go to 12.15, panelists. So um, uh, perhaps you'd like to just maybe go one by one and uh, address whatever you can address and all of the comments that we got. Um, well, uh, let, let me do the Daily Show and losing. Um, as far as uh, as far as ha losing hope in the system because you've lost two elections, think of William F. Buckley who died this week. He started in the 1950s and said, "Okay, we're going to change the country." And in fact, he and his little cadre uh, grew substantially over many, many, many defeats. Um, and so I just. You know, the, the sense of time changes when you get to be as old as we are, that uh, two, two elections does not a revolution make. Um, and the, uh, on the, uh, the Daily Show, uh, and do we need more satire? Uh, you know, I get paid for it. Uh, <laughs> I'm not going to argue against it. However, let's just think, the, um, the uh, right wing has a war in Iraq, an economic system that's totally in um, their advantage, and um, uh, environmental rules and business rules that uh, are perfect for them. We have the Daily Show now. <laughs> you know, it's uh, it's a balancing act. Um, and the last thing about women and the or the first question about women and uh, the image, I hope that I said in my remarks earlier that having women in the media actually does change the view of women. I mean, we can uh, it doesn't always work and we don't always do it. But uh, I know the women um, cartoonists have changed the way women are portrayed in cartoons. Uh, when I got started, uh, I started drawing women as every woman. <laughs> and uh, the cartoon strip that I've uh, started, Family Tree, is about a teenage girl. And she's going to be talking in uh, upcoming uh, strips about the whole Hillary thing, uh, whether her mother is too shrill or too bossy to be a mother. <laughs> her mother says, I would never be elected to motherhood. 
on the uh, on on those grounds. So um, I think it's incumbent on us who do have the pens and do have uh, access to the media to help uh, to help on those images. And I think that people calling uh, broadcasters like Tim Russert on it. Uh, really makes a difference. There's an article in today's Times talking about the self-reflection of the press on uh, how they treated Obama versus Clinton. So just keep at it. <laughs> There's so many diverse questions. And also then I'm going to speak and run. I apologize, but I have a 1230 speech to give, and so I can't say the both of you. Um, women in politics. Condi versus Hillary point you made. Well, you know what? If close to 50% of the people out there in politics were women, we wouldn't even be having that discussion. Some people would like Condi Rice, some people would like Hillary Clinton, and they wouldn't be the only two people out there to be discussing. And you might like a lot of the other people who were there more, for whatever reason. So I do think that there's a critical mass factor um, for women in politics that we have not hit yet, and therefore we see all this playing out in very strange ways um, in the press and with each other. Um, the young woman from Albany who asked about you know, the visuals you have to have to be a woman in politics. And the fact is that my argument is you have to be who you are. You have to know what you stand for, why you're doing it, and be able to defend yourself. You have to have a thick skin, but you don't want to try to be somebody else. Because I would argue all these over-consulted um, candidates who are trying to fit in this box today and that box tomorrow um, lose their their way or the public doesn't buy it. Your cartoon strip, I think, will be a great example of that. You know, so I was told when I was first considering running, you know, they're going to say the worst things about you. And I said, you know, I know I'm short and fast. That's not really going to be a surprise to me. Um, they said some other things, you know, that I supported rapists and I support public urination, which actually apparently I do. Um, <laughs> because I voted against a bill that would have put homeless people in jail for public urination, and then my opponent in an election did TV commercials live through this for public urination. That was disgusting. <laughs> uh, which was, I thought, really funny, and I still have the ad. Um, so know who you are and why you're doing what you're doing, and then don't worry if you look like everybody else. And be prepared to put your feet in your mouth on a daily basis, I do every day. On the issue of if you've lost at campaigns, you know, give up. Well, I'm a Watergate generation kid. I'm 50 years old. So I decided, well, the President of the United States was a crook back in the 70s, so I turned off politics until really I was 42. I, involved, I stayed involved in policy. I ran not-for-profit organizations that did advocacy and policy for 20 years, but I thought a pox on all those politicians. Well, you know what? We got what we, what we deserved at a certain level of that line. You know, I didn't vote for them, but we live here too. So I would argue you're going to lose a lot more, but if you, if you decide not to get involved, you know, 10 years from now, if you think you don't like who's in office now, you're really not going to like who's in office. So you have to keep pushing no matter what. Revolution, you know, who knows? Habeas corpus, great argument. Um, get involved no matter where you're coming from in the political process. People tell me I'm on the left. I go, you don't even know what the left is if, I think I'm the, if you think I'm the left in this country. So I would argue we need a left in this country because I actually know I'm middle of the road. So if people think I'm the left, clearly the left is not out there speaking out. Um, okay, I'm done. Thank you very much. Thank you. The left is listening to John Stewart. Yeah. And I apologize. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. Very nice. Um, I, the term, the three words came to my mind when, uh, in answering several of the questions raised, and I would say exercise your power. 
with regards to uh, young people who might not be um, up on the issues and so on, I absolutely agree that voting is not, is not just a head thing, it's an emotional thing, it's a heart thing. But I would say I exercise my power because I'm teaching a class right now that's on state government. But you know what? We're following the presidential race, and the main incentive for those students to learn is called an exam. Uh, it's a test because we're talking every day about the it's fascinating primary election season. And sure enough, I put it on the test. They have to know something. But uh, So I'm exercising my power. Now, on another story, I want to say that regards, regarding the access to the media, uh, uh, I wanted to share with you all um, a note that came across to me on my desk. Uh, and it was from um, the University of New Mexico's hotshot in Washington, D.C., a lobbyist there, and a, uh, trying to get um, us on the tube. And the note was, O'Reilly is looking for a guest, preferably Hispanic female, who can talk about Hispanic resentments of blacks and why it might impact Obama's chances in California. And they wanted me uh, to do it. Um, I chose, I thought about it quickly, and I chose not to. Because I thought I had to exercise my power of not legitimizing that ridiculous proposition in the sense of uh, right now our data and our evidence suggests that that is uh, not accurate as to why Latinos and Latinas are tending to favor Hillary Clinton over Barack Obama, and that is a fluid situation. But I knew that the O'Reilly show was a trap. It was not meant to be able to use my skills to enlighten or to educate. He would not be interested in that. So I quickly informed our public affairs department that I would be happy to address that issue, but I would not do it on O'Reilly. Um, this was some great questions. Uh, so, <laughs> um, there were a lot of questions too. Um, one of my uh, strongest memories from high school uh, is that I'm at my grandfather's funeral at the sort of dinner afterwards. Uh, in this is sort of in a you know, like classically um, economically depressed, um, somewhat rural area of New Jersey where, you know, all the main street businesses are closed down, the public schools are, you know, suffering and struggling, there's no jobs, et cetera, et cetera. We're at this dinner, and um, my uh, grandfather's mistress's son, so possibly my cousin, not sure, um, <laughs> whatever, uh, you know, says to me, uh, we're sort of, I don't kind of remember, the sort of beginning was a blur, it is after all a funeral, uh, but then you sort of get to this part in some political argument or another where he says, well, you know, and this is a, you know, sort of 20 something white man. He says, well, you know, uh, white men are the most oppressed group of people in this country. And sort of that was it. Like, I think sort of at the point, uh, I hadn't sort of learned the skills of debate or argument and sort of as the funeral, it was the food. I don't know. I just kind of burst out crying and left the room. And <laughs> that was sort of the totality of the discussion at that point. But, um, what you know, in, in as I when I think back on that, um, you know, what's true is that there are a lot of people. The question before about you know so who's in power, right? There's a lot of people who feel really screwed by the system the way it currently is, 
it's more than 50%, more than 51%. It's not just women, it's not just people of color. Um, and part of our challenge has got to be, how do we talk about our solutions in a way that are equally as linked? And I don't mean when I sort of say the common good, you know, there's a version, there's a version of the common good out there, which is this sort of whitewashed, let's not talk about issues of race or class or, I don't mean that. I mean, it's common good in a way that's clear that we all do better when we all do better. And making sure that when we talk about everyone, when we talk about America, we're including everyone and we're really lifting up the whole to get together. Um, you know, I'm not, uh, I work for a C3, so I sort of can't comment on the uh, presidential race, fun though it would be. Um, but there was sort of a, 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 an exchange between Gloria Steinem and I that got some attention um, in the last month or so. Uh, in response to an op-ed that she'd written in the New York Times where she argued that if Barack Obama were a woman, he wouldn't be faring as well as he is. And my response was, well, if Hillary Clinton were African-American, she wouldn't be faring as well as she is either. <laughs> so this this notion, um, this sort of point is, oh, by the way, and if either of them were uh, white men who were worth less than, say, you know, $200,000, uh, and, and, you know, sort of were not only had come from mill workers, but actually were maybe still mill workers, they wouldn't be faring as well either in the way our system is currently set up. Um, the, the challenge is that question about losing campaigns that came up. You know, the challenge is, is when we are so desperate to win because things are so bad that we're willing to compartmentalize or sort of cut off one part of this whole vision, one part of our understanding for how, what a good society means, what a, what a democracy means, what a just America means. We're willing to sort of sell out a piece of that and say, oh, no, no, it's really just about this over here and, and forget about all this. The example around taxes is a good one. Uh, you know, right now, uh, does anyone know what sort of the upper income, if you sort of exclude all the loopholes, uh, people who earn a million, two million dollars a year, income tax, what is it? What are they, what are they supposed to pay? About 40%, give or take. What was it in the 1960s? It was 90%. It was 90%. Meanwhile, you have the Democrats talking about tax relief. Taxes are this bad thing we sort of have to be relieved from because, you know, if we sort of do that, we cannot, you know, or we can even sort of talk about cutting taxes, right? You have Democrats sort of racing to say they're cutting taxes because we can, you know, it's more important to sort of get something now, right, to try and sort of get some stranglehold on power and lose sight of our, our long-term agenda, our long-term vision. There's another example around immigration. You have this, you know, harsh, you know, incredibly punitive uh, rhetoric around uh, immigration right now. Illegal immigrants, they're criminals, they're bad people, blah, blah, blah. And there's been a recent poll actually among a number of uh, Democrats and uh, liberal think tanks in Washington that says, in fact, Democrats should start using that language. They should talk about illegal immigrants and require them to become citizens. And if they don't become citizens, we'll deport them. This was the recommendation. This is how you win. This is how you get the presidency. And so losing can suck. Um, but winning, when you in fact lose your principles and you lose sight of what you were fighting for in the first place, sucks way more. Um, so I think, you know, sort of my, my closing thought would be let, that we try and really remember when we talk about democracy, when we talk about our vision for the country, who does it include? Make sure it includes everyone and make sure we're trying to move that vision in a way that is as inclusive as possible. Yes, winning along the way, but trying to keep our eye on the prize of, of what real, winning really means. Thanks.
Well, what I'll add to the comments that have already been made is, number one, people are not only absent when it comes to going to the ballot box, they're absent when it comes to being at PTA, Parent Teacher Association meetings, their parent, they're absent at their city council meetings. When it comes to local politics, I think that's where people really can make an impact, and yet people are not being adequately uh, or adequately participating in, in that process. For the point with respect to education, I just want to raise, you know, people are noticing how involved young people have become in this campaign, and yet we have a system right now in place called the school-to-prison pipeline. So again, kind of inserting my issue of felon disfranchisement, when you think that, you know, criminalizing behavior at school, sending kids to juvenile facilities, which is just a pipeline for going to prison, you have a, a larger percentage of the population who won't even be able to vote in the first place. So I hope that people are paying attention to that. Um, I also wanted to talk about with respect to engagement and the issue of income, poverty. Poor people are so overwhelmed with just daily survival issues, working, um, housing, you know, especially if you're in government housing, Section 8, I have, you know, clients who are dealing with, you know, where are we going to live for the month of March. And so, again, it is hard to get people to be um, as active as we would like them to be, but perhaps we need to think of different models for people to engage. Maybe it's not always having to go to the polls, opening the polls on the weekends, having longer hours at night, things like that that we can incorporate. Um, in terms of women and Hillary Clinton, you know, sexism is ingrained in our society. It's ingrained in us as women. I heard some folks from Tennessee, women in Tennessee, saying, you know, because of my Christian values, I grew up to think that a man should run the country, and therefore, I, you know, in that case, she's going to support McCain, but wouldn't support Clinton um, regardless. Revolution, I think we're seeing revolution right now. You have women for Obama. You have men coming out in support of Hillary Clinton. So in some ways, there is revolution. Obviously, this panel is an example of revolution, of times changing. And so hopefully, um, with the times changing, those who are the older folks, I guess, can either can, can keep up. And I say older folks really as a litigator, thinking of the, the makeup of the courts right now, especially the Supreme Court. You have individuals on there who, you know, grew up during Jim Crow era or way back when when we were fighting for basic civil rights and are just not caught up on the times that we have today. Gay marriage, um, you know, all types of issues going on. And so I, I think that we, we need to get our younger people more out front in, in those levels, the court system as well. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, be, don't don't leave yet. Uh, Neferti is going to uh, come up and tell us what to do next. But I just want to thank very much. Thank the panelists again. Uh, some of them came from far away, and thank you for your participation as well. <laughs>